Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. With the big reveal of the 2022 ABA Bird of the Year, only a month away, tickets still available at aba.org slash bird of the year to our event in Philadelphia, by the way. I decided to take a look around the world to see what other countries have done for their various birds of the year or bird of the years, whichever way you want to do it, competition slash fundraiser slash awareness campaign slash points of meaningless argumentation. There are a number of places that do Birds of the Year. It's very popular in the bird life. International countries, Europe does a ton of them. Um, I started out by Googling Bird of the Year just to find out uh, who who was doing it. And I only found like three places, three countries. I hesitate to use countries because the ABA area consists of both the U.S. and Canada and a tiny part of France, if we're being pedantic. Then I I very quickly realized that uh, English is not the only language that people speak in the world. So I pulled up the old Google Translator and I searched for various Aves del Año and Vogel de Ciares and Waso de Lani. And I found quite a few. There's some really good ones. Uh, Germany does a Vogel de Ciares. And in last year, in 2021, it was Rotkelchen, which is the European robin. Apparently it's second time. As Bird of the Year, they've been doing it since the 70s. Pretty great. Spain did one as well. It was the Common Swift, then Sejo Comun. Great bird, great name, great indicator species for various environmental concerns, namely having to do with insect loss. In France, it was the La Chaveche d'Athena, or the Little Owl. Cute bird, love owls. Netherlands had the Vita Kvikstart, white Wagtail, another fantastic choice. I even went to Russia, though, as I got away from the languages that use the Latin alphabet, it became very difficult to know how to pronounce things. Uh, but they do. They did the red-footed falcon, the kobchik, uh, for 2021. A lot of great choices. And, and I bring this all up because there's been some news recently about New Zealand's bird of the year for 2022 and, and how it is not, in fact, a bird. It is the long-tailed bat. What are you doing this, New Zealand? You might remember some this month in birding ribbing in the past with regard to New Zealand's seemingly vexed bird of the year voting. Lots of fraud, fair bit of mockery. Well, this year they apparently decided to lean all the way into the ridiculousness and chose a bat, locally known as the Pekka Pekka, the long-tailed bat, which is New Zealand's only native mammal. That's cool, I guess, but my, my bird-loving heart still cannot completely comprehend this decision. So I dug a little deeper. Conservationists in New Zealand are hopeful that this sort of counterintuitive choice will raise attention to the broader conservation challenges in the country. I hear that, especially after the last couple of years I've seen the kakapo run away with the competition. It's been like the bird of the year for the last two years. And granted, if I had a weird green flightless parrot the size of a cocker spaniel in my country, I would be hard pressed not to make it the bird of the year every single year too. But I can see how that would get a little stale after a while. So New Zealand... Welcome back to this brave, new, or old, maybe medieval comprehension of the world. 
in which bats are birds again. I'll accept it this year. But 2023 has to have feathers, right? Maybe a nice stately Takahe, adorable rifleman. Or Kaka, because I, you know, how many birds have Brazilian soccer stars named after them? I didn't even have to stretch like I would for a Neymar Ganser. On the show this week, we're coming to the end of the year, and that means it is time for the Birding Book Club to put together our best of lists. Donna Shulman, Frank Izagiri, and me talk best bird books of 2021, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of November 2021. It's always nice when a first state record is also a great ABA area vagrant, and that was the case this week in New Mexico where a blue mockingbird was discovered at Carlsbad Caverns National Park in Eddy County. Blue mockingbird is a stunning Mexico endemic. Looks a little like what would happen if you plug a gray catbird into an electrical socket. There are about seven ABA area records, all from Arizona and Texas. One previous New Mexico report was not accepted because of provenance concerns. But this is a species that does undergo an elevational migration into the lowlands in the fall, so it's at least the time of year you would expect a natural vagrant to occur. Other first records of note this week include a groove-billed Ani in Grant County, North Dakota. While on the surface, that might seem bizarre. This is a species that has a pretty extensive pattern of vagrancy across the middle of the continent. Indeed, there was one earlier this fall in Ontario. Not at first, but with fewer than 10 ABA area records, still Something to note here, a social flycatcher was evidently a one-hour wonder in Cameron County, Texas this past week, so very few Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival goers were able to connect. But a golden-crowned warbler in the same county that was a little more accommodating was a nice alternative. Those are the highlights in the rare bird world this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the rare bird alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba or get those rarities as soon as they happen at ABA Rare Bird Alert on Facebook. It is time once more for the most anticipated birding book club of the year, our best of episode for 2021. Am I selling it hard enough? Uh, yes, it is still November, uh, but Hanukkah in particular is very early this year. So we want to get this conversation out there for holiday gift buying season uh, birders uh, for, for our listeners' sake. Um, I want to welcome my, my birding book club colleagues from 10,000 Birds Book Reviewer Donna Shulman and birding magazine media and book review editor Frank Izagiri, who I should note is now co-editor of Birding Magazine, splitting time with Ted Floyd as your inaugural issue as editor came out last month. Congrats, Frank. Congrats. Uh, well, yeah. Thanks, welcome guys, very much. You. Thank yeah. you. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Let, let's just jump right into it. It is a uh, we got a lot to talk about. In addition to our individual top fives, this was a, a weird year bird and nature publishing and and part of that may have been pandemic related i think the pandemic made a lot of things weird um but we also saw the retirement of venerable houghton mifflin harcourt editor lisa white uh, who was behind so so many of our favorite nature titles over the years i certainly want to wish her a happy and well-earned retirement but this is the sort of thing that sent shockwaves through the nature book world what do you guys think about this I uh, will definitely miss Lisa. Um, the few birding festivals I went to, she was always a welcome face, and mm -hmm. we had great chats about their books and books publishing in general. Um, we still have some people left, uh, but in addition to Lisa, you had um, a change of ownership at Lynx, 
Mm-hmm. And there just seems to be a lot of shifts going on in uh, bird publishing, and it is a little concerning. Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird coming right after what I think we all agree was sort of like a golden age of nature book publishing. Like every little niche interest was being covered with its own book. And uh, who knows what we're going to see going forward. I, I should add, before, I know Frank has to go, but I just want to add, in addition to Lisa retiring, you had um, a change in o- ownership of HMH, her publishing yeah. company, uh, to where they sold their their book division to HarperCollins. So that's also a factor. I never met Lisa in person, but I did communicate with her a few times online. She's, as as others have said, she's so nice. She's so talented. It was something like I wrote something for the ABA blog a long time ago, and she sent me a book. Just she said, "Do you do you want this book?" and and because it was relevant to the to the post, and and she sent it to me. It was just really generous. And I, she let me do like a little mini interview with her, just like on Facebook Messenger. Yeah, so that's that's definitely a loss for the bird book industry. And I think birders who love books, which is a lot of birders, are a little bit like on the edge of their seat to see what happens with that void. That's how it's going to be filled, sure. or or what exactly is going to happen. So. Yeah, you know, it's uh, from what I understand, a lot of the uh, books in the HMH library that were not published yet are going to be sent over to Princeton. Is that correct? Princeton University Press, which, you know, as far as quality is concerned, I have no qualms about about them taking over. Princeton University Press has always been one of our favorite bird book and nature <laughs> book publishers. And um, mm-hmm. but it, it is weird to see everything under one house, right? Everyone under one publishing house. And um, I I don't I don't know what it means. I but it, it it feels significant though. I don't know exactly to what end. On on the plus side, there is still a certain amount of self publishing or small mm-hmm. publishing going mm-hmm. on. Crosley Beautyo Books just published a big year book, um, so. That's still an option, although yeah. they don't have the resources to do right. field guides, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, you know, I guess Lynx is going to sort of fit, kind of, you know, put themselves into that into that void because they've got illustrations for every bird of the world, as we saw last year when they published them all in one book. Um, they could mix and match and do, you know, any number of really neat field guides to a lot of different places. They'd be a, a little bit cookie cutter. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. The quality would still be there. Um, as I said, I don't know really what this this all means, but um, it, it 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 should mean something, and it, we'll we'll see how it plays out. Uh, what a time to be a bird book lover! What a time! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we go from the golden era to the I don't know the the medieval times. I don't my, think it'll be that bad, but <laughs> my bookshelves need some relief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, yeah, so so as we have done in the in years past, we each created our uh, our top five bird books of the year. This was a, a bit of an odd year for bird books. I think I think this is the third third year that the three of us have done this. I feel like in the past we've had a lot of common books on our lists. This year, there's not a ton. Like there's a very wide variety of books out there. Do you think that is indicative of the way that the the year kind of played out in bird book publishing. There's just a lot of kind of interesting stuff out there, a lot of reissues, uh, a lot of stuff like that. It's been it's been kind of a, a weird year uh, for a lot of reasons. I think, in a sense, 
Um, yes, it is indicative of the year because I think that this was a strong year for international field guides. Mm-hmm. It just seems like every year has great new international field guides coming out, but maybe some of the other genres were like a little more subdued. And so the international field guide stood out a bit more. And I just don't think, I think on some practical level, we just didn't, the three of us didn't look at all of the same international field guides, but I was happy to see when I saw your guys's list, there was a, there were a few books. I was like, I should check that one out, but I don't really have time or I don't have it or I didn't get, you know, a review copy or something. And so I I saw a few pop up on your guys's list. So we covered them in that sense, which is good. It's like a go team situation. Yeah. Um, So that that was sort of one trend that I felt that I felt emerged. I I was also just wondering uh, the effect of the pandemic on publishing in general and on the fact that maybe we had less books coming out in the U.S. because there was a slowdown mm-hmm. along the way, you know, whether it was in the writing or the editing or the production. Yeah, I wondered that too. Um, you know, maybe people were putting them off to a post-pandemic reality when, you know, they might have more opportunities to travel with them or tour with them. I know as someone mm-hmm. that has written mm-hmm. a couple couple bird books, um, being able to travel to bird clubs and give talks and sell your books there as, is a huge part of being a bird book author. And uh, not being able to do that uh, for the last almost two years has put a real dent in uh, my book sales. I can't imagine what it's like for people who are more uh, invested in it than I am. Yeah, that's that's interesting to think about. Like, are there some books that were just tabled um, mm-hmm. because it would it would really um, cut into what authors were able to make off their books. And so they're just like, oh, I'm going to wait. Yeah, That's a real possibility. And I, guess, I have I guess no idea. Know. It's just my yeah. sense. All right, so we shall we jump into it? <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. We did not have any books that were on all three of our lists, but we did have three titles that were on two of our lists. And let's uh, let's just go ahead and start with those. Frank, you mentioned... Frank, you mentioned uh, International Field Guides, this being a very good year for International Field Guides. Uh, let's go ahead and, and start with uh, the new one from Steve Hilty, uh, The Lynx Birds of Columbia. Uh, I thought this was a great guide, just if, if for no other reason than Columbia was so overdue for a really comprehensive field guide. Steve Hilty did one a few decades ago uh, that obviously was quite out of date. Uh, not for anything that Steve did. It was, you know, amazingly mm-hmm. up to date for the time. But so much has happened in Colombia in terms of people exploring it, uh, mm-hmm. also splits, lumps, all sorts of things. You know, it was it was kind of woefully behind the times. And this brand new one from Lynx is uh, is really cool. It's really comprehensive. It does the cool Lynx thing where it has the the QR codes that you can read on your phone mm-hmm. and get more information about the book, so it can cram you know almost two thousand species into a relatively reasonably sized title. Um, really great book. Uh, I used it this year, which uh, may be part of the reason that I, I ranked it so highly. But uh, I thought it was great and um, much, much, much needed. Yeah, that's cool that you actually got to use it in the field. Um, <laughs> sort of, yeah. So it's mostly um, in my backpack. <laughs> it, it gives you like a special power, I think, when you I carry it around true. with you. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so when I was thinking about what exactly I wanted to say about this book, it kind of hit me that you guys remember last year we had all the birds of the mm-hmm. real, all three of us had all the birds of the world I think on our list which is of course a Lynx title and it kind of hit me like well in a way because Columbia has 
a, a little less than a, a fifth of the world's birds. <laughs> this is kind of like a mini version of that this book. Is like all the birds of the world, junior. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it has so many of the birds. So that's kind of in its own way what makes the book spectacular. Um, yeah, it's it's got really nice maps with various yeah. colors to indicate breeding, wintering, um, migratory status of birds. You got the QR codes that you mentioned. It's got Spanish names. It does. Um, it does. One per bird, only Spanish one per bird. So I'm sure there are all sorts of opinions out there, or at least opinions will form on what, you know, there's just so many different regional names in circulation. Yeah, and there's one only... of the problems with Spanish names in general. Yes, but it is it's nice a to know the names uh, for the birds if you are in Colombia. At least there's some commonality there. Frank, I know you wrote a piece about uh, Spanish names for birds and the difficulty of coming up with a common Spanish name list for North American birds uh, a few months ago, earlier in the year. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. It's, it's helpful for people to keep in mind that these aren't those Spanish names aren't official, but it's mm-hmm. a name that people can use. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they're just using the birds of the world names, whatever th- those names were chosen, um, are the ones that are in the guide, I would think. We're running a review in the December special issue, Peter Kastner wrote a um, review of uh, of the three most recent Colombian field guides. So mm-hmm. he, uh, a few are a few years old already, but it's nice to compare all three. We have Miles McMullen's book and, or his, his latest edition and uh, Fernando Ayerbe Quinones' book. Um, and he compared them to Hilti. And, you know, he, he said they all have their strengths and their weaknesses. So he's kind of like, well, you know, the real cool thing to do would be to get all three, but Hilti <laughs> is the most recent one, of course. Yeah. So, and he liked it the best. Spoiler: um, it's got the most up-to-date taxonomy, which is 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 its own, has its own value. It's flexi-bound, so it's, mm-hmm. you know, it pre- presumably has some nice durability yep. in the field. It's big, but it's not. That's what you get. In South super America. big and heavy for <laughs> yeah. a book, a field guide for the country with the most birds in the world. Yeah, it's got really nice illustrations. Some are a little stronger than others. Um, Peter talks about that in his review. So yeah, that, I actually had that as my number one That's book right, of the year. Yeah. Um, jumping, jumping to the end, yeah. It was my number yeah. three, but I, honestly, these, these <laughs> lists are sort yeah. of uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> squishy, I guess. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that that's a very exciting title. Donna, do you have anything you wanted to say about it? Or uh, I didn't get a chance to look at the book. Oh, okay. Well, it's yeah. very cool. <laughs> well, Lynn, let's jump it's to good. a book that um, <laughs> you and I shared. The third one will be the one that you and Frank had that I didn't get to see. But um, uh, this book was also sort of, I, I'm going to presume, on Frank's uh, honorable mention list. I know he liked it very much as well. And that is uh, Scott Widensall's A World on the Wing. Very strong book about bird migration. Scott Widensall is an amazing writer. Um, just so evocative. I interviewed him here on the podcast. One of the one of the most fun interviews that I did mm. all year. You know, anything that he puts out is sort of a must read in the birding world. Um, I just thought it was really well done. Um, and Scott, what, what else can you say about Scott that hasn't already been said? It's uh, he was a what was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and, and for they don't just like hand those away like Halloween candy. Like that's that's <laughs> he, he got it legitimately. <laughs> um, what did you think, Donna? Oh, well. After that, (laughs) (laughs) I found the book very cinematic. You know, I was just, Mm. I was just re-looking, thumbing through it in uh, preparation. And I was thinking, 
I would love to have a maybe a like a National Geographic type TV program, mm, and mm-hmm. we could you know go to the Yellow Sea and see the spoonbill sandpipers feeding and see how much habitat they've lost. I mean, one of the great things about this book is it's not just about birds; it's about the scientists and the conservationists, yeah. the people who eBird, everyone who's contributing to saving birds. Scott is always so positive. He'll say things like, we've lost a third of our birds, but then you end up feeling there's hope because he really really focuses (laughs) on the collegiality and the good things that have been done. So it's in a way, it's a... um, it's like one of those adventure stories where you might have like some worldwide cataclysmic thing happen, but at the end, everyone's still <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there there's, are survivors building. They're standing to a around world. and it's like like a plant slowly, you know, winding its way through a crack in the right, post-apocalyptic right. landscape. Right, yeah. right. And <laughs> and I really <laughs> I really want to I don't think I'll ever go to Nagaland to see the, the Right. Amor, Amor, Falcons. Yeah. But I'd I'd love to see that. You know, I'd love to see them coming into roost against, you know, that that background. Yeah. He's such he's such an amazing writer. And um the book is I you know, anything that Scott puts out, as I said, is is worth is worth picking up and, and checking out. And it's also good because I think if birders read a world on the wing, they'd say, Oh yeah, I read about this little nugget. And, you know, they have these scientific nuggets in a lot of birdie magazines and podcasts, but he puts it all together. Mm -hmm, For sure. And this was your number one book of the year. I I, I can't, it's not, I keep jumping to the end. (laughs) (laughs) It's not very suspenseful, but um, yeah, this is my number two and uh, and your number one, Donna. But as I said. I I like books. I saw last year, I also had a popular science book as Mm -hmm. number one. I like books that everyone can read and enjoy. Yeah, that was Ac- Jennifer Ackerman's book. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. It was also really good. It, it, it's, it's just been a really good time for uh, for those kind of books. I think uh, Jennifer Ackerman's obviously Scott Widensall, Ken Kaufman had the one last year. Um, yeah, I really liked John Donne's Glitter in the Green. It didn't make my top five list, but I thought yes. it was really well done as well. Um, there, you know, there's a lot of really good popular science books about birds, and, and I wonder, you know, does that have anything to do with the sort of renaissance that birding has had? I know that these books are sort of put in production well before the the pandemic and well before there was any sort of attention that birding was getting in the media but it seemed like they hit at exactly the right time for that which i thought was really um i guess it was coincidental but um yeah all of these authors are this is not their first book sure yep but they are good entryways for new birders who want to learn more yeah for sure i really like the amur falcon chapter or essay. Um, well, first of all, we're reviewing this one in Birding 2. Marcel mm-hmm. Gabauer, who's like a super migration expert in uh, Ottawa, he reviewed the book and he also had a very positive review. Um, so that's, that's, in the, that's in the November issue. It's the kind of book that if you like nonfiction writing that blends travelogue with little bit of character, scene, setting, and science, this is a really good example of that kind of book. And this book is for you, you know? I, so, I, sometimes I get yeah. the feel. I know that Scott Widensall works really, really hard 
uh, on his books. But sometimes I just get the feeling like he can roll out of bed and put like 50,000 words on bird migration. <laughs> it's just so effortless the way yes. he, he he writes and the way he talks about this stuff. I don't know if you've ever seen Scott Widensall give a, a presentation at like a bird. He, he's mm-hmm. like, this is the best presentation I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. No notes, but everything is like perfectly timed. Like he just hits start and like, he doesn't switch the slides. They switch on behind them, but like, it's so just like seamless mm-hmm. that it's, it's, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. Like he's just such a master of the craft of presenting compelling bird content. He, well, he's here in Pennsylvania and he's a celebrity. Like he's famous, you know, everywhere. Yeah. But, um, I, I did see him give a presentation once at a conference and He'd just walk into the lobby, you know, and everybody will start clapping, you know. So he really like he commands people's attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's move on. Um, this is a bird, a book that was not on my list, mostly because I I didn't see it. Um, but it's a new uh, addition to the Peterson series, which have always been uh, fantastic. Uh, it was on both Frank and Donna's list, and because you both put it on there, um, it was both number three on your list. How how interesting is that? Um, it's not really that interesting, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, the Petersonville guide to North American bird nests by Casey McFarlane, uh, Matthew Mangello and David Moskowitz. Tell tell us what you liked about this book. I mean, obviously the subject matter is immediately, immediately compelling. So I needed this book because, (laughs) um, like many other birders in New York state, I'm contributing to the, uh, third breeding bird atlas of the state. Mm. And a lot of us all of a sudden realized, besides robins and hummingbirds, maybe gnatcatchers, mm-hmm. we didn't know what the nests look like. <laughs> and they are not in our field guides. No, they are not. Uh, I think a long time ago when they first started writing field guides, they did cover nests. And mm-hmm. I remember when I reviewed uh, the field guide to Australian birds, they included nests. Hmm, hmm, but we don't hmm. do nests in our our field guides because it's not part of identification. And right. our field guides focus on identification. So I needed to know what nests look like. And now I have this book. Um, there was a Peterson field guide to nests, but that was like in the 1980s. And it's out of print. and. Hmm. I think it was just for the Eastern U.S. I didn't find one for the Western U.S. They may have had that, too. Hmm. There's also this wonderful book, uh, Nests, Eggs, and Nestlings of North America by Paul Bachik and Colin Harrison. But that covers all three. This is just on nests. It's really, uh, I think, needed. It covers habitat, location, and structure. Uh, the eggs, and nesting behavior. So it's just a very good resource, especially, as I said, for uh, bird surveys and breeding bird surveys. Hmm. I had some some notes I took before before we recorded that you covered a lot of what I wanted to say. It's like kind of, it's interesting because we, like for birders here in the ABA area, a lot of times we think of summer as like, the summer doldrums, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not migration. We, we don't have, like, interesting, you know, winter eruptions that are a possibility. Um, we'll do a breeding bird survey to, like, get our heart rate up or something. But it's like, you know, we just got to be patient until, you know, the first July birds start to show up or something. So it's kind of, it's interesting to me because you, you mentioned this, Donna, like, finding nests and 
identifying them used to be a bigger part of birding culture in here and also in other parts of the world. But in the United States, in the ABA area, it's kind of like declined a little bit. Like the, the way it's developed, we have more of an emphasis on like finding an adult bird and identifying it and nests kind of like it just used to be a bigger thing and you see that reflected in really old books like around the turn of the 20th century uh and so this book it's a really nice new resource for people to like get into that there's a lot of great information how to find the nests what they look like uh, it's got 650 species, so there's really comprehensive coverage of the kind of the yeah, birds wow. that do mm-hmm. that do nest in uh, the U.S. and Canada. A lot of them have pictures of the eggs, not all of them. Um, a lot of them have pictures of the nest, not all of them. There's a, there's a few species where it's got like a little bit of text. Yeah, um, yeah, but not and, many. Uh, yeah, and, and for ducks, there's the photos of the feathers, which I found fascinating. Oh, that makes the difference. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. So there, interesting. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and it also has kind of like the appeal of the sort of like it's an odd field guide. It's like different. It's like a different take on the field guide genre. So it's a really cool book. There's a lot of knowledge in there. And I think it was really cool, Donna, that you talked about it in a very, from a very practical sense of like, you're getting ready to do a breeding bird survey. And like, this book is going to help you do a better job. So that's, that's really neat. And I think Peterson has this long, uh, Peterson guides, I should say, has this long history of doing sort of um, birding adjacent guides like not not field guides what we think of as like the essential text for for being a birder but all these sort of tangential things like nests or <laughs> birding by impression or mm-hmm. sparrows or like all these sort of extra stuff which mm-hmm. i love like I, I love having that stuff in my library just because as as a as a collector of information and a collector of bird books even if i never use them i still like to have them mm-hmm. um peterson has always been really great about that and just to tie back to the thing we talked about before like is that going to be a priority for someone like Princeton who has mm. not pushed that sort of side of birding as much? I know, it'll be interesting to see uh, how that all plays out. I hope this is not the last of the sort of uh, fun Peterson Field Guide. Molt. This, molt. This, the, the molt. Oh, that's the perfect molt. one. Yeah, reference yeah. Guide to molt. Yeah, exactly. Come on. Come on. Who else is going to publish that? Let's just sort of work our way through some of these other books briefly. I'll, I'll go ahead and pick a, a guide that I really liked uh, this year that you guys didn't have on your list. And maybe it's, you know, off the radar for a lot of North American birders, but it is a flight identification of European passerines. That was on my honor. That was on my honorable honorable list. Yeah. (laughs) By, uh, by Thomas Kafta. It's, uh, it was put up by Princeton University Press. I think there's a long history of these books that have come out in Europe. Yes. um, That don't have an equivalent in, in the ABA area in North America yet. Mm. Mm. And for that, I'm thinking of, you know, the rare, there was a rare bird book that came out in you know, I think it was Rare Birds of Britain, and it was very similar to the Rare Birds of North America that Steve Howell put out, you know, a few years later. Um, I really hope that this book comes to North America. I would love to see a flight identification of North American passerines and select land birds. If someone's out there and wants to do it, please. But th- this is really cool. Um, it's got illustrations and photos of all the uh, European passerine birds in flight, ventral views, dorsal views, side-on views. And it's also got these cool, um, because I love um, visual interpretations of bird calls. Um, yes. It's got those as well, all the flight calls. Um, the really cool. Spectrogram, that's the word I'm searching for. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's just great. Um, really, really comprehensive, really cool. And not only just a really cool idea, but just one that was really done very well, um, very useful. 
Uh, you know, I may never see any of these birds. I don't know how useful a flight identification book of European passerines is for me personally, but I love the idea and I love the ambition. And I really hope that we see this sort of thing in North America at some point. Oh, it's just so visually stunning. I it, just... it really is. It's just cool looking. Yeah. I'm a sucker for just a really cool looking book, mm-hmm. even even if it's not particularly useful for me. It, for what it's worth, that was my number one bird book of the year um points for creativity points for ambition that's cool that's one i don't have yet but from everything i've heard it's amazing so that's cool i'll go with my my fifth book which is vida color y canto plantas neotropicales que atraen aves this is a colombian book written in spanish that i had kind of i almost forgotten about and then i remembered as we were getting ready for the podcast so this is a really really neat book uh, it's a second edition that I, I didn't realize that it existed before. Um, it was originally published in 2009. The reason the second edition was published was in large part because the first edition had such a small print run that the book was really rare and it mm-hmm. was in demand. Like people wanted this book in Colombia and there's some updates and stuff. And it, from what I understand, it was like there are various improvements to like the text and the quality of the book. Uh, and it's like resilience to the elements, but it's kind of interesting because the the authors talk about the book as a field guide, Guia de Campo, but it's like, it's not laid out as a field guide in the way we think of field guides. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time the text is on the left and the illustration is on the right, the illustrations. It's it's kind of like that, but it's it's really, it's not, it's not in that like strictly plate based format. I think what they mean when they're referring to it as a field guide is it's designed to be a little bit resilient in that like you can bring it out into the field, the field and have yeah. it, and it and it's like won't just like melt uh, right. uh under you know the conditions of the Colombian rainforest or, or wherever you're going with it. Um so so that's kind of interesting. It's like a little more like traditional in what that means. And the book is more of like a botanical book. Because it's focused on plants. Plantas neotropicales. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about both the birds and the plants. But there are more illustrations of plants. It's got like 121 different kinds of plants of many different kinds. um, Trees, bushes, etc. And even though it's a Colombian book, it's not just about Colombian plants. It's really supposed to be about all the neotropics. So it's like Hmm. northern Mexico through whatever parts of South America are considered neotropical, maybe almost has a little bit of relevance to the very edges of the ABA area, like South Texas or, or like the Keys, basically. But it's kind of a stretch. I'd have to like really, <laughs> I'd have to know more about uh, the botany of those places to, right. to, to see if there was some matchup. And I wanted to put it on my list for two main reasons. So one, there are so many books like this for the ABA area and also Europe, but this might be the only one for the neotropics mm. that I know of, like how to attract birds to your yard or like, you know, for urban designers, for making um, parks or like if you have finca or that kind of thing. Um, that's such a huge region, you know, and it's the, the yeah. birdiest region in the planet. So it's a really cool resource <laughs> in mm. that sense. And it's also, I think it's very exciting because as more robust birding cultures take root and develop in Latin America and the neotropics, I think we're going to see more books like this emerge. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be important to keep our eyes on, on them too. There might be surprising innovations uh, in the bird book 
publishing world coming from the neotropics. So I think that's a really cool thing about the book. Okay, it, it is in Spanish. So it's going to be it's going to you know obviously it's going to be a challenge for non-native speakers to use, but I you know I think it's kind of a cool resource for birders visiting the neotropics because you can learn a lot about the kinds of trees that neotropical birds like and are attracted to like you can mm-hmm. really like if yeah. you're going to the neotropics for the first time maybe you know just focus on to just like, try to get your mind around the field guide but if like if you're a vet or you're thinking about expatriating to the neotropics which is not plenty of birders do that mm-hmm. th- i think this is a cool book to have where is it available is it available oh uh, some weird website you know i don't okay. remember where i got it. <laughs> <laughs> so that could be a little research project for you, but I, I can yeah. look it up. But um, it's, a, it's an adventure. Everything yeah. about this book is an adventure. <laughs> right, right, right. Finding right. it, reading it, using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can impress your your guide. Know, know know some of the names of the plants in Spanish and just hit them with it yeah. <laughs> when you're on your trip. So anyway, it's a really really cool book, and so I really wanted to to mention it once I I remembered it. Right on. Okay. Habitats of the World. Another kind of cool one. Oh, it's a similar, yes. similar, similar book to Frank's. As yes, well, yeah, that's true. It's, let's, <laughs> it's a good segue, as well they done. say. Yes. Subtitled A Field Guide for Birders, Naturalists, and Ecologists. And it's by uh, Ian Campbell, Ken Behrens, Charlie Hess, and Phil. Phil Sean. Phil Sean, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, listeners might know their names because they are all um, guides. Some of them are co-owners of uh, Tropical Bernie, mm-hmm. which is an international bird tour company. We're talking about innovative field guides. And as far as I know, this is the first field guide to habitats. Yeah. Uh, it did remind me of the neotropical uh, guide. Correct. Oh, Neotropical Companion. Yeah. The Neotropical Companion, which in a way is sort of a field guide to the habitats of the Neotropics right. uh, in depth. Uh, but this is to the world, and it lists, I think it was like 189 habitats. Hold on, let me look just at that. my notes. I'm surprised that it's so few. Well, they just do land. They don't do okay, oceans. right. <laughs> Fair enough. And, yeah, and that is 70% of the world. So, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they talk in the introduction, you know, that they sort of focused on the major right. habitats. For each habitat, they talk about uh, climate, elevation, types of trees, grasses, other vegetation. Then they talk about the mammals and birds you're most likely to see there. That's they cool. don't do insects. And again, they talk about that in the introduction, because that would be like a 10,000 page book. Yeah, like a handbook of the birds of the world type uh, enterprise. (laughs) Right. And then they give an overview of the countries where the wildlife is found, um, what endemics are found in that habitat, uh, the distribution. And they list the uh, best or most typical hotspots and countries for that habitat. A lot of photographs. It's interesting to think about how one would use it. I think it's like a really good resource if you're traveling. Mm -hmm. It's not a perfect guide. And I'm going to talk about that more because Frank asked me to do a review for Birdie Magazine. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not perfect. It works really well going from habitat 
to birds and mammals, mm-hmm. but not so great if you're doing like, okay, where can I find this particular bird? You know, right. uh, the index will give you a couple of habitats, which will lead you to countries and hotspots. But I think for that to work comprehensively, you'd have to have a handbook for each of these 189 <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, there we go. True. The future of bird publishing. <laughs> Eternal. It's never ending. Yeah. I, I really like this idea of, um, and I think this is uh, true both in this book and just in a lot of things that I've seen lately, this idea of birding is a very holistic, natural mm-hmm. experience. Um, you know, we're not just interested in, in finding specific birds, but we're interested in knowing about the places where they live, you know, all the other organisms that can be found around them. Um, I've always enjoyed birding from that perspective as sort of like a, the birds are the things that get me out there, but I'm sort of interested in everything that I'm mm-hmm. find while I'm out there. Having guides, having books that sort of accommodate that interest uh, in a more explicit way is, um, is just really cool. And uh, I know all these guys, they're sharp, sharp birders and they're really great naturalists. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have not seen this book, but I've seen a lot of uh, good things that people have said about it. Uh, which which does not surprise me in the least. Yeah, it's it's a great idea, and I think mm-hmm. they they do it very very well. You need to know a lot a lot about the birds of the world and just global birding to be able to write a book like this. Yeah, I mean, for just sure. in and of itself, sure. that's very impressive. I also don't have this one yet, but I am going to pick it up. And if, uh, birding is lucky to have esteemed book reviewer Donna Schulman on the case, so that's <laughs> that's something that our readers and members can can look forward to. All right. Do we want to wrap up our uh, top five list? I'm going to uh, force you to keep your comments on the next books to uh, something around 30 to 45 seconds, if that is at all possible. So I'm going to I'm going to just snag my last two um, birds of Argentina, which I liked very much for the same reasons. Uh, many of the same reasons that I liked uh, Hilti's Columbia book. I think Argentina needed a field guide for a very long time. And Princeton University Press is such a great publishing house to tackle it. Um, they did a great job. It's it's you know useful in the ways that you that the very best field guides are, um, and I liked it a lot. Uh, so I added it to that list. And um, a pocket guide to pigeon watching. Rosemary Mosco's new little book. I, it may be recency bias because I talked to Rosemary not all that long ago, <laughs> but um, I, I think it's just a really really nice book. And and Rosemary is uh, a delightful person, and her personality really comes out in that book. Um, and I think it is such a really nice little uh, book that you can give to someone who might be kind of getting into birding. Um, it's a neat way to kind of maybe pull them in a little bit more. So those are my last two. I may have uh, gone over my own 45-second um, <laughs> piece. Do you guys want to grab grab the last couple of books on your list? Yeah. Uh, Melissa Yang is reviewing uh, Rosemary Moscow's book for us, by the way, and so I'm excited about that. Yeah, I can do mine together really fast. They're both books that surprised me mm-hmm. and were were very interesting to me. Number four, I had Naturalized Parrots of the World, which was edited by Stephen Pruitt Jones, who was also a recent podcast guest, uh, and that was a really interesting interview. It's just like it's just something I hadn't thought about. Like you know, there's so there's so much to say about um, parrots colonizing the ABA area or Florida or Miami-Dade County. But like to think about it on a global perspective was so interesting. And there's some really neat, whatever you want to call them, articles in their papers um, because it's an edited collection. And it just, there's just, if, if that subject interests you at all, that's just a really exciting book to, to, to check out. Uh, okay. So, so that one I very much enjoyed and the other one that I picked was Bird versus Bulldozer, a quarter century conservation battle in a biodiversity hotspot by Audrey 
uh, L. Mayer. So this one, this book is about California Netcatcher and mm, fascinating story. So this is like my 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 surprise, my other surprise, like under the radar pick. It's written by an environmental policy expert, and so there's like everything you could want in there about like public policy and. Even if you're a Californian, you think you know a lot about California gnat catchers, you're going to know at least like 500% more by the time you finish this book. And so it's just a really interesting, very thorough look at like what the future prospects and current prospects hmm. uh, of this of this species, which is a threatened species, are. So I really enjoyed that I have one. To check that out. I know that the whole story between the California gnat catcher, there's some really weird angles, like developers trying to convince taxonomists that it's not a full yes. species and therefore not. That's in there. There's some really wild stuff in that story yeah so um this is also like a yale university press book which they used to do more bird books if Mm -hmm. if if, as i recall and so it was kind of nice to see this one come out um this year so yeah this this was a really a really cool one uh well since you mentioned species one of the books i uh put on my list is how birds evolve what Science Reveals About Their Origin, Lives, and Diversity by Douglas J. Futuma. Uh, Doug, I hope that's acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doug is a birding friend of mine, and I um, actually mm, first cool. first got to know him when he did a presentation to my bird club about species uh, and evolution, which was quite a while ago, but it really struck me because. Um, He's an evolutionary biologist, and he's not an ornithologist, but he really spoke about the subject uh, so I could understand it. The book Mm. talks about species and evolution, uh, how birds behave and how that came about through evolution, uh, why certain birds are in certain places, why we have true tanagers only in the neotropics, why we have hummingbirds in North and South America, but they found a hummingbird fossil in Europe. It covers a lot of the science tidbits have come out in the past years, but in the overall arch of looking at it from this biological evolutionary perspective, it's not an easy book, but Mm. I think it's important for us as birders to understand a little bit more about these processes than what we just read in maybe the news. Last but not least, it was actually second on my list, is Seabirds, The New Identification Guide by Peter Harrison, Martin Perro, and Hans Larsen, which is the long-awaited update to the original 1983 book by Peter Harrison, Seabirds, An Identification Guide. This is just a really good field guide about a very obscure, still not really totally understood, several families of birds. Uh, it includes real seabirds and also gulls, uh, sea ducks, phalaropes, but mostly you're going to read this by it uh, for the real seabirds, those yeah. oceanic birds that you only see on pelagics. And there's been a lot of upheaval in their taxonomy lately. And not everyone agreed with how Harrison and his colleagues approached it. Mm. Uh, But I think they did a really excellent job of talking about why they made the decisions they did in the introduction, which I think is really important in a field guide. 
And as a field guide, it is just excellently uh, put together. It's all drawings, all artwork uh, by Harrison and by Larson for the um, gulls and turns and skimmers. You talk about the Harrison's uh, decisions that he made. Uh, they yes. made on the. I, I feel like even if they're not the decisions that other people would make, Harrison is as 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 informed about it all as any. Like I would trust him as much as anybody. And you know, seabirds are such a mess. So you do what yes. you can. It's just it's a well done uh, field guide, and this is something that you don't always find in that the illustrations include little notes about what to look for, for identification, which I think I, Mm. I really prefer rather than having little numbers, you know? Yeah. I've not seen this book, uh, but by all accounts, it's one of those things that everyone was waiting for and they finally got it. And, um, yeah, I mean, 20 years is an eternity in seabird taxonomy. It's going to be out of Mm -hmm. date again in maybe five years, but um, it took their best crack at it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of seabird people are have been looking forward to this for a while. And it's a life project, and I have for so sure. much respect for people who do these life projects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's another one that I don't, I don't have, but by all accounts, it seems to be superb, top tier book. That's really cool. And also, I wanted to mention that uh, How Birds Evolve is another one that we're going to have reviewed in the magazine. By you guys are on it. You guys are fun. Uh, doing my best. <laughs> anyway well well, we got to the end of it finally we had some tech difficulties but we made it and hopefully the people listening will not even notice that if i do my job correctly but i do want to thank both of you for your time and your expertise and uh yeah we'll be back with birding book club again in the new year uh happy holidays that includes thanksgiving to uh all of you and we'll see you in in 2022 thanks guys yeah, Thanks. thank you. Thanks, Nate, Frank. Good, great seeing you guys again. Absolutely. Yeah. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits, like our magazines, discounts to our partners, and opportunities to travel with us. Get information at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week to Tyler Thiessen of Devon, Alberta, Jennifer Black and the Black Household of Knoxville, Tennessee, Nicholas Earnhardt of Costa Mesa, California, Linda Kornishevsky of Bridgeville, Pennsylvania, Ingrid and Ethan Whitaker of Wicasset, Maine, Susan Zimmerman and family of Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, and Island Sperber of Newton, Massachusetts, all of whom joined the ABA, noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really is a rush to see folks doing that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who wonders if there's a denaturalized parrots of the world process for Kias who are deported for car vandalism. Technical production is from John Lowry, who ordered fight identification of European pastorines, which is really about how to differentiate various soccer hooligan groups when the teams have birds on the crest. It's very specific and probably not very useful. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who eagerly await the inevitable Peterson's Guide to North American Bird Crest, which is less a joke and more of a request. Please, Princeton. You can find us at ABA.org on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Association or ABA. I bought a knockoff version of Widensall's book. Only realized it when I got to the fifth chapter about hurricane birding and noted that the front cover said World on the Wing. W H I R L D. You know, that that uh, that is a joke that works better. If you are reading it, I should have gone with uh, Fatoma's How Birds Revolve. Questions, comments can come to podcast.aviated.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week.